Have you ever had someone do something for you that it seems so kind, so supportive, so whatever, that it just left you feeling kind of overwhelmed with gratitude because they would do something like that for you? You ever had that happen? Here's our go-to story for this. I've told this. It's been years ago, but I'll tell it again. Um, back during the season when we had decided we were moving to Kansas City so that I could attend seminary, we were at this point where that was the only part of our plan that we knew. We were, were leaving teaching, and we were, we were moving to Kansas City to seminary. And we're at this spot where we, we didn't have jobs. We didn't have insurance. Uh, we didn't have a place to live. We just were, we were sure that's what God wanted us to do, so we were doing it. And so we took a long weekend to go looking for a place to rent, to live. We dropped our kids off with my folks and headed out for Kansas City and spent a, one of the more depressing weekends of our life. We, uh, you know, we didn't have jobs. We thought, here's what I could probably make it a part-time job, and Rachel was going was gonna to work. So we, we thought we knew about what we could spend, and we started looking for places to live for five of us in that price range. They were a mixture of very small, uh, very dirty, and very unsafe, and some combination of those things. In fact, I had one landlord... Uh, tell me after he had shown us the place, he told me, hey, don't, don't move your family in here. <laughs> I was like, noted, noted. Uh, it was, uh, but it was depressing. We had decided, I guess, the best thing we could do. The housing market had just collapsed. We thought maybe we'll buy a foreclosed house and put it on a 30-year mortgage and hope we can sell it in three years when we're done with seminary. Um, but boy, we didn't want to saddle ourselves with that kind of debt. So it was our last day. Um, we had found, we had like literally no leads on anything except for buy a, a junked out house. I got lost in, in a nicer part of town and had to pull over to try to figure out how to get back to the seedier parts of town where we thought we could afford something. It was, it was raining, Rachel was crying, uh, and I, I pulled over in the rain to consult the map to see how to get back on the other side of the four lane, um, and we just happened to pull over and park right across the street from this nicer little house that had a for rent sign in the front yard. Rachel, through her tears, said, why don't you call and ask about that? Uh, I was frustrated at this point. We had looked at a hundred places way worse than that little joint, and I, okay, I snapped at her and told her what a waste of time that would be for me to call on that place. And she said, just do it, just call. And I said, okay. So I called, this guy answered the phone, um, and I said, I'm you know, calling about your house for rent, and he started laughing. And I'm like, well, that's not the response I expected. And he said, you know, my wife was just laughing at me. I have no idea what possessed me. I just walked outside in the rain to put that sign in our yard. And my wife was like, why would you pick, why would you go out there now? 
And so he told me what he wanted for rent, and I said, hey, thanks a lot. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to swing that. And before I could hang up, he said, hey, do you think I'm too high on rent? And I said, no, based on what I've seen, I think you're right, you're right where you should be. We're just not, it's not going to be able what we could afford. And he just kept talking. And he said, you know what? I've never been a landlord before. I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I don't even know if we're going to be able to rent this place. See, my wife and I just bought this house. And my job is sending us to South Africa for three years. But we, we're upside down in this thing. I know I will take a beating if I sell this house. My father-in-law and my wife, they, they're just telling just sell it. You know, but I kind of want to rent it out. But we can only rent it out for three years because then I want to move back. And I said, well, it's funny you say that because I only want to rent a place for three years. He said, oh, really? What do you do? And so I explained, moving here for seminary. He was quiet for a beat. And he said, we're Christians too. When could you stop by and talk about this? I said, buddy, I'm outside right now. Like I am, I am here. Uh, if we gave them uh, a little bit of time to clean the place up, we went back that evening. We spent about three hours visiting with them. But as, as we were walking around, uh, the, the man's name was Sean. I told him, you know, we, we, uh, we've been landlords. Being a landlord from South Africa sounds like a terrible idea. I encouraged him, you should just, just take the loss and sell this place. He asked me, well, what could, you, what could you afford to pay for rent? I said, Sean, I have no idea. I don't have a job. Uh, I re- we really don't know. Here's, you know, that's when I encouraged him, you should just sell the place. We left the next morning. Sean called us when we were almost home. And he said, uh, you know, we have been praying about this. We, we don't think this is an accident. We think the Lord put us together in that timing. We think the Lord wants us to provide a house for you. And we think the Lord wants you to take care of our house for the next three years. So here's my plan. He said, you plan on moving into our house. Then find jobs. Then figure out what you can afford to pay for rent. And that is what your rent will be for the next three years. We were overwhelmed. That that couple, but more importantly, our God, would provide a, a place for us to live when we had no ability to do so. I don't know what your story is like that. Have you ever been overwhelmed? by something someone has done. Well, that's kind of the story we're going to look at today. Last week, we looked at the first 17 verses of the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we read what's usually called the Davidic Covenant. What it is, is a list of promises God gave to King David. The story briefly went like this. David decided he wanted to build a house for God. But God, through the prophet, um, through Nathan the prophet, God told David, no, 
not only are you not going to build a house for me, God said to David, I'm going to build a house for you. And then God explained what he meant by that. God told David, I'm about to make you one of the most famous men who's ever walked the earth. And I'm going to build a a house, not a physical building, but a household and a royal family out of your descendants. And, And I promise that one of your descendants is going to be on your throne forever and ever and ever. And where we pick up this morning, we're just going to read David's response to what God has just promised him. In short, David is overwhelmed in a positive way. David is going to respond, as Dr. Robert Bergen puts it, with awestruck humility and bold faith. And then Dr. Bergen is correct when he says that David's response is a model for all who receive unmerited blessing or grace from the living God. So let's read our passage as David responds to God's promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let me know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you, and there's no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 23, and what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land, before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, so that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to me, your servant, saying, I will build you a house. And that's why your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. There's our passage. It breaks down pretty easily to to two parts. This is David talking back to God. and, And first, he just marvels at the plan he's just heard from God. 
he's just kind of, that's the, the, the being in awe, awestruck humility. And then in the second part, he prays God's promises back to God. So marveling at God's plan and praying God's promises. First, let's see how David just marvels at the plans God has just laid out in the first 17 verses of this chapter that we didn't read this morning. I love how verse 18 starts. Because David has just heard some incredible, unbelievable promises. And the first thing he does is maybe not what you or I would do. David doesn't run to someone in his family or one of his friends and say, wait till you hear what God just promised me. There'd be nothing wrong with that. Telling other people what God has promised is actually a good thing. But David, see, he's just heard this from Nathan the prophet. And so verse 18 begins this way. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. David hears what God has promised from Nathan and he runs toward the God behind the promises. More than he is fired up about what the promises mean for him, he just wants to go be with the God who promised the promises. He runs into that tent where the ark is and he just plops down. How long has it been since you just went and plopped down and talk to the Lord about his promises. When he gets there, David responds with awestruck humility. He says, who am I, Lord, and what is my house that you've even brought me this far? See, David, like by, by rights, David should have died about a hundred times by this point in his story. God, he was just a little shepherd boy watching his dad's sheep. And for seemingly no reason, God picks him to be king. David says, I can't believe you've even done this much for me. Then in verse 19, he says, and yet what I'm learning now is everything you've done for me thus far was like a warm-up act. Every great thing you've done for me up to this point was like insignificant compared to what you just promised me. I can't believe, I can't believe where I was at already and now you tell me all this? He's, he's awestruck. He can't, he can barely believe it. And he knows there's nothing in me that would make you promise these things. The end of this verse right here, verse 19, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Our Bibles translate that differently. It's really hard to translate and even understand. Here's what I think the sense of it is. He says, you've just spoken of me this way. The normal custom of man, the way things work is what you say happens but this is not the way it normally works. I can't believe this is what's going to happen concerning me. Verse 20, when David says, what more, speaking in the third person, uh, what more can David say to you? What more can I say? To you? Here's, here's how I think we should understand that. Here's what David wants to say. 
David's heart, when he hears God say all of those wonderful things, you're going to be the most famous man in the world, powerful, be, and uh, your kingdom is going to last forever and ever. David wants to say, there must be some mistake. You ever feel like this? God, if you know half the things I've done, you won't have anything to do with me. David says, there's nothing I can say. I can't say there must be some mistake. There's not a mistake because you're God. <laughs> I, I should say, Leah, but Lord, you can't really mean this. Let me tell you my uh, resume of sins that I've sinned that would disqualify me from this. You already know you're God. And yet you promise all this stuff. In verse 21, here's the bold faith part. David, pay attention to this. David talks about these promises that he's just heard, which are all future things. He talks about them as if they're already done. You have done all this greatness. Then David says this, and if that stuff wasn't good enough, you let, your, you let your servant know. You've told me ahead of time. If I just like got into eternity and someday figured out what you were doing, that would be good enough, but you let me know ahead of time that this stuff is coming. It just keeps getting better. In verse 22, David just spins a sentence saying or two, just telling God, you are the best. There is none like you. There's nothing better than you. In verses 23 and 24, he kind of zooms out from his own family and talks to God about God's promises to Israel as the whole nation. David is keenly aware the stuff God has promised him personally is only because God has some promises to keep concerning the whole nation. David knows, who am I? I don't deserve to be this. This isn't about me. You've got other promises to keep concerning your people, Israel, and you had to pick somebody. I don't know why you picked me. But he spends some time uh, talking to God about what he's done for his people, Israel. And he uses, David uses a very special word uh, about what God has done for Israel. And it's this word right here, redeem he uses it a couple of times. God has redeemed for himself a people. Redemption's a really churchy word. It seems like it, but it's not. It's a financial transaction word. To redeem something just means to go pay the price for it and take it home with you. If you, if you stop at the store on the way home from church, you have to pay the price required for that gallon of milk so that you can take it home. You have redeemed it. That's what God did for Israel, David says. We were in bondage and slavery. You showed up in Egypt. You did everything it took to get us out of there, and then you took us home. You've redeemed us. And David says, you redeemed us for yourself. 
In these verses right here, there's a lot of different ways David says, you did this for you, God. And it seems kind of selfish. Like, God, you only saved those people for yourself because you wanted to. But Israel gets something pretty sweet out of the deal. And you, O Lord, have become their God. There's nothing better God could do for anyone than to let them know how he can be their God. That's the best thing God can do for anyone is reveal himself to them. They got freed from slavery. That's not the best part. Yahweh became their, their God. That's how, that's how David sort of marvels like all of God's plans. And now, after he sits down and, and goes through just how awestruck he is at hearing everything God has promised, um, David gets to the prayer request portion of this prayer time. But the only prayer request he has is that God would just do what he's promised. He doesn't ask for anything else. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, David says, basically, here is all that I'm going to ask you, God. Just do what you told me you would do. It's like David says, I would ask for more, but I can't even imagine what more would be. Like, I literally can't ask for more than you've already promised. It's enough. It's so much more than I deserve. I can't ask for anything else. In verse 26, so he says, God, do what you promised. Then in verse 26, David says why he wants God to do all the things God promised him. And notice, David doesn't say, God, I want you to do those promises because it's going to be awesome when you make me the most famous guy in the world. That's going to be pretty, that's going to be really good for my brand. That's not why he wants God to do God's promises for him. David I don't want you to do this stuff so people think I am awesome. I want you to do this stuff so people know that you are awesome. Do this for your name's sake. I want other people to know what I know about you. You're incredible. And when you take a little nobody named David and make him king. And you take this little nothing of a people that everyone always hates and wants to exterminate and preserve them and keep them safe. God, maybe other people will look around and say, man, the God of those people must be the real God. That's why I want you to fulfill what you have promised so that other people know who you are and what you're like. He says in verse 27, that's my response to your promises. That's why I'm here speaking with you. I just want more and more people to magnify your name. And then verse 28 is another look at the, the bold faith part. Verse 28, David says, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Again, David says, I know what you just promised is going to happen. 
Because as soon as your words come out of you, they're true. They'll happen. There's no part of David that feels like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if that stuff I just heard really did happen? Wouldn't that be? There's nothing like that in David. It's not like he just read a horoscope or the inside of a fortune cookie and it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if? No, he knows. Because God promised it, the promises are sure. David believing God's promises so confidently, boldly, reminds me of another very famous person in David's ancestry. I want to show you, because these are the two major uh, covenants to this point in redemptive history. Clear back in Genesis, God showed up to a guy named Abraham. His name was Abram back then, but God would rename him Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, hey, you're going to have descendants, so many descendants, they're going to become a nation. That winds up being Israel. That nation, I'm going to give its own homeland. That's Palestine, the promised land. And then Abraham, or God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through your family that become that nation. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. Now what we read last week, and I've been talking about this week, the Davidic covenant really is just more information about the Abrahamic covenant. God promised David, there's going to be a Messiah, this king that comes from you, from your lineage. David's going to rule forever and ever. And uh, he's going to reign forever and ever. That's just part of Abraham's promise. Uh, God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through your descendants. Guess how he's going to do that? From this Messiah that comes from David's lineage. And then God gives more information about that homeland and that nation to David. Israel's going to live securely in the promised land one day. We're still waiting. Now, those of you who are astute Bible students, when Abraham believed God about those promises, what happened for Abraham? In Genesis 15, God said this, to Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord. The Lord accounted it, I like that word, or credited it to Abraham as righteousness. Here's what that means. A God Abraham didn't know existed shows up to him and says, hey, you leave your home, come with me, I'll do these things for you. I'll give you a nation out of your descendants, they'll have their own homeland, and I'll bless the whole world through your descendants. Abraham believed that God he hadn't known would do that. I believe you will do what you say. As soon as that happened, as soon as he believed, the Bible says, Genesis says, Paul would say it again later, that God took Abraham's faith and he credited Abram's account. He accounted it to Abraham as if Abraham's whole life had been perfection, behavioral, moral perfection. 
that reminds me of David today. And David's, when David believes God's promises, and he does, God does the same thing for David. When you believe God, the promises you're accountable to believe, God takes the, your faith and, a, and in his judgment of you, when you stand before him someday, your faith makes it seem like when God judges you that you've never made a single mistake in your entire life. He credits it as righteousness. That's, why, that's what makes faith so important. Now, we are responsible to believe different promises than Abraham and David were responsible to believe. We have to believe that this Messiah King that was promised to David, that his name was Jesus. We have to believe that he died under the punishment, under the penalty our sins deserve. When we believe, God credits that to us as righteousness. So that my, my favorite illustration of this, it's like a personnel file. We all have a personnel file for, with God. Every stupid thing we do, every sin we sin, every good thing we should have done but didn't do goes in our personnel file. And every person is going to stand before God someday and he's going to get out the personnel file. Oh boy, this don't look good. Guess what? You're not righteous. Depart from me. Unless we believe what we are responsible to believe about Jesus Christ. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When we believe that God credits it to us as righteousness, that means as God takes the information from Jesus' personnel file, his behavior, his track record, and he puts it in our personnel file. So that when we stand before him, oh, wait a minute, let me see if you get in here. Let me pull out the, the contents of your personnel file. But he's reading Jesus' personnel file instead of yours. Isn't that awesome? That's what it means to be credited, accounted righteousness. Okay. That's our passage and a little extra. Now I said at the beginning, I quoted at the beginning Dr. Bergen who said, David's response to God should be a model for us. And before we move to communion, I want to give you three ways that you and I should model David's response toward God. Okay? First, we should still be awestruck by what God has promised us. If God showed up to you sort of like he did to David and said, hey, tell you what, I'm going to make you the most, one of the most famous people who ever lived. Would you be awestruck by that? Sure. But you know what? We get something way better. The promises we have from God are actually better than what David got promised. David got promised fame in his lifetime and great stuff by his descendants, by, by a great, 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 great grandchild. 
we get promised accredited righteousness and eternal life. It's better. We should still be awestruck every day by what God has promised us. Second, a second way that David's response to God should be a model for us. We, we should be awestruck by what God has promised. We should go plop down with the Lord and tell him about it from time to time. But second, the main desires of our hearts should be for what God has already promised. The main desires of our hearts today should be for what God has already promised. Here's how we see that in David. David is awestruck, and then when he starts asking God for something, he just says, I just want you to do what you already promised. Remember that in the passage? That should be our prayer to God too. Because we cannot improve upon what God has already promised us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you cannot improve upon what God has already promised you. You have literally been promised infinity for eternity. You have been promised all things for all time. Yeah, but God, I'd really like a new bike. Every, every, other, every other prayer request we have pales in comparison to what we've already been promised. Now, don't hear me wrong. We should still ask God for stuff because he told us to. You should be asking God for healing. You should be asking God for, for healing in your relationships. You should be asking God for wisdom, for direction, for all those things. But listen, your, the main desires of your heart, we should be calibrating our hearts to what God has already promised that are sure, that is sure. And because every other desire we have, every desire we have, every need we have, every want we have, will be fulfilled by what God has already promised the believer in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Every other need and desire that you have comes from, I have a desire to be loved and I'm not being loved well. One day you will be. I have a desire to feel significant. One day you'll, you'll know that you were because you will know, oh my goodness, that holy God gave his life so I could be here. Like you'll grasp that. You'll get that. You have a desire to be taken care of. You have a desire to not feel pain. You have a desire to not be lonely. You have all these real desires. And we should pray our way through those things down here on earth. But all the while, calibrating the timing of our heart till that point where we know those things will be fulfilled and taken care of. Like David, I'm awestruck by what you promised. And I know, God, my main prayer request is just do what you've already promised. It becomes that bedrock for our lives, that, that anchor for our souls that won't let us fall too deep because we know this world cannot take away from us anywhere close to what's already been promised us. And finally, the last way David's response toward God should be a model for our responses toward God is just simply, we should believe God. 
We should believe God that someone like me can actually be forgiven and credited as righteous. We should believe that what I have to look forward to, I really do have to look forward to. Because God promised it. Not because I deserve it, but because God has promised it. We're going to close right there. We're, we're going to kind of pick back up in the sermon around the table in just a minute. But I'll let, you, I'll let you put your stuff away and get ready for communion. Pray with me for a minute. And, uh, and Walker, I've actually got a, a scripture in back in easy worship that you can go ahead and put up. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have promised us some incredible things. Because you promised Abraham you would bless the whole world through his descendants, and you promised David you would give us the king through his descendants, and we know that is Jesus. And because you crucified him under the punishment our sins deserve, you have promised we can be credited with his righteousness, and you promised our redemption because the price was paid you have promised you will take us home where all of our needs will be met. We are overwhelmed, O God, by what you have promised. We look forward to that time when all of our wants and needs and desires will be completely met. And because we believe that what you, your words are truth, because we believe in these promises, we gather around this table now to remember what Jesus did, the price that was paid for our redemption, but also we look forward to the day when you take us home. Commune with us while we remember and celebrate what you did for our redemption in Jesus' name. Amen. While the bread comes around, uh, maybe this is the time where you plop down before the Lord and tell Him you understand how awesome His promises to you really are. May God bless our time with His, uh, His body, the bread. Tonight Jesus was betrayed. He took bread at the Passover. He broke it into pieces. He gave a piece to each of his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And he asked us to remember him as often as we do this. Now, In that passage, I want to read this chunk again with you. Now, what more can I say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. That's why you're so great, O oh Lord God. There's none like you. 
nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Can I talk about your yeah buts with you for just a minute? Because I know, I know there are many of us here that struggle with them. I've explained several times the, the plan of salvation, how Jesus' righteousness gets substituted for ours, which guarantees your eternal life. Yeah, but, and what do you say? Yeah, but in your, in your heart, what is the objection that comes up about your sin and your eternity? Yeah, but you don't know how I've failed. Yeah, but it can't be that easy. Yeah, but how do we know that's even true? What's yours? David said to God, how can I say there must be some mistake? You're God. How can I say, God, if you you knew what I've done, you wouldn't be promising these promises. You already know you're God. And who am I to say what you have promised couldn't really happen? You're God. David believed God. That's it. Because David had to come to this understanding. One of us has got to be God who's right all the time. And I don't think it's me. And I don't have to understand why God would make this his plan. I just have to understand he's God and not me. And believe the God who promised the promises. So let me ask you before we pass out these cups... Do you believe God? Because he said the blood that this this juice symbolizes is enough to guarantee your eternity with him. Not because you deserve it. Not because he was looking the other way when you sinned your worstest sin. But because he was willing to pay the price of your redemption. Do you believe God? That's why we plop down and say, these promises are amazing because I know I don't deserve this. But you paid for my soul. Father, we have so many yeah buts in response to your promises. Will you help us preach your promises to our souls? We need it. Will you help us believe you? We believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you for your promises and your goodness. We want other people to to know and to grow with us, Lord. 
that all might worship you as you win a people for yourself. Thank you for the price that was paid. It was not easy. It cost your son's life. And that was enough because you said so and your word is truth. Commune with us around your cup in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing God could give us that would be better than himself. And that became very true at the cross where he gave himself and the person of his son to die under the penalty your sins deserve and have the wrath of God fall on him so there would be none less left for us. He, he said that the wine in his cup that night was the, was the blood of a new covenant wherein men find the forgiveness of sin. Do you believe it is enough? You should. He promised, and his words are truth. Do this in remembrance of him. Amen. Thanks for being here. I love you guys. See you next week.